everybody, Randy here. Before we get to today's episode, I want to thank Precision Pro Golf. Every golfer needs a range finder that they can trust to know the precise distance to their target, whether you're on the tee box or in the fairway. The No Laying Up team from the C-Suite to the Strat Boys carries Precision Pro Golf range finders. And right now, the NX7 Pro Slope is on sale for just $219. Our listeners can receive an extra $20 off by using the promo code no laying up, all caps, no laying up. By our math, that means you can add the award-winning slope rangefinder to your golf bag this summer for just $199. Plus, Precision Pro Golf is the only rangefinder that offers free battery replacement services, which saves golfers an additional $64 on average. So you're not only getting a rangefinder, you're signing up for a lifetime service. Based in Cincinnati, Ohio, I want to mention that's uh, the real Queen City. Precision Pro Golf performs all of their quality control tests at Avon Fields Golf Course, which of course was the site of my personal best score. Sorry, Nandy. If that isn't good enough juju, we don't know what is. So go to precisionprogolf.com, precisionprogolf.com, and use coupon code NOLANGUP, all one word, NOLANGUP at checkout, for $20 off our favorite rangefinder. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Thank them for their sponsorship, and now on today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw podcast. I am Randy. I um, I always enjoy these conversations. I have an author on with me today. Uh, this is part of our ongoing book club reading room. Uh, we don't really have a home for it right now. Our website is being refurbished, redesigned, uh, but it, it still lives on in podcast form. So um, without further ado, my guest today is the author Brett Sergalis. He has a book out today called Golf's Holy War, The Battle for the Soul of a Game in an Age of Science. Brett, how are you today? I'm good, Randy. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the show, so... Well, thank you, and I, I appreciate you making time. Um, how, first of all, how everything I trust is okay up in your neck of the woods? Where, where is home for you? Uh, home is New York, so okay is a relative term. Uh, you know, it's still not good. Still not a lot of going outside. Uh, well, I was able to carry my bag over the weekend, which was nice, but uh, supermarkets and things like that are kind of off limits. But uh, you know. Could be worse, I guess. Sure, sure. Um, well, obviously, uh, you know, be safe and, and nothing but the best for for not only yourself, but all the folks up up in that part of the country. Um, you, you mentioned you. you were able to carry your bag. I, I think that's a great place to start. What uh, What is your background with golf? Tell me about, you know, have, have you golfed all your life? How'd you get into the game? Um, help, help fill in a little bit about uh, your history. Yeah, yeah. Um I first, I guess I started relatively late. I started when I was 13, um, which feels late, but uh, I got it. I still remember, I remember the shot. I got asked, a buddy a buddy of mine was like, hey, you want to come play golf? I was like, yeah, sure, why not? It was him and his dad. And I went out, and I don't remember the first four and a half holes, but I remember the fifth hole, I, f- I was using his dad's you know clubs and choking down, and I hit a seven iron flush. And it flew up over the hill. This fifth hole has like this big downhill. It flew up over the hill, and I didn't see it come down because it went over the hill. And like that feeling where you, when you hit it flush and you don't really feel anything, you know, and I was, that was it for me. I was done. Like I played lacrosse growing up, I played baseball, I played football, and it was like, that was it. Golf was it for me. So, um, still played football in high school, but, but focused on, on golf. Um, Got a couple sniffs to play D3, decided not to, um, got into Villanova, 
Um, coach asked me to try to walk on. I, I didn't make it, which was fine because I wasn't going to be a pro anyway. <laughs> so uh, I actually remember um, a couple of guys on the team. We were for that freshman year. Me and some friends were walking into a party and they were walking out. And I was like, hey, where are you guys going? And they were like, oh, we got a lift tomorrow. We got to run. I was like, all right, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, was, you know, and then, and then at Villanova, I got, you know, deep into being an English major and uh, had a great professor there. This guy, Jeff Silverman, who wrote for SI and edited Bernard Darwin on golf, which us golf nerds would love. Um, he kind of pushed me in that direction, got an internship at the New York Post, um, after college, graduated in 06, uh, started there as an agate clerk, which nobody knows what it is. Is The agate pages are the stats and standings in the middle of the... So there used to be... We used to have four... Every day we'd have four pages of horse racing at least and like seven or eight pages of agate. Like just standings and stats and... The, these are all the major stuff. sports leagues? Like the standings and stats of baseball, you know, all that stuff? Everything. CFL, everything. Like the betting lines. You ever want to know what Saskatoon was laying and (laughs) CFL? (laughs) We had it. But the schedule was uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday from 6 at night till 2.30 in the morning. Waiting for like the Dodgers and Giants to finish, you know. Um, I was making pennies. And was the happiest kid in the world, you know, <laughs> it was like, it was a cliche with uh, Chinese food boxes knocked over and, you know, like just with everything piled to the ceiling, talking to all these great writers, these uh, George King, Joel Sherman, Mike Vaccaro, like these guys that I grew up just idolizing. Um, so golf kind of like, I think like a lot of people kind of came in and out of my life a little bit. Like I really wasn't playing very much, you know, I was playing maybe seven to 10 times a year. Um, and then I was, I was at this outing. It was a Met golf writers outing because I was still covering golf in the summers. Um, and it was the opening of pound Ridge at Pete Dye golf course up here. So it was 2008 and it was like one of those outings we've all been to. There was carts lined up and people in the putting green and boxed lunches of sliced apples. And there was a presentation going on in the range. Um, and it was this guy, Skip Latella giving this presentation and he was, uh, he had a student, a female on these like hard rubber balloons stand. She was standing on him. He called them flexor discs. And he said that when he was moving her into position, the discs were creating static electricity, which was opening the neurotransmitters in her brain so that her muscles and her brain could make better communication and that he was reteaching her a complex motor pattern subconsciously. So I don't know why I was paying attention in the first place, but I heard him <laughs> say, so I, uh, so I was a reporter. So I went over to him and was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I started getting into it with him and was like, who uses these? And he was like, David Glenn's and who was former national teacher of the year. So I went out to New Jersey. I spent some time with David Glenn's. He had a guy on his range named Henry Ellison, who was, uh, he had this long history with technology and videotaping and, and hated it. And I had this big divorce and now he was like this esoteric spiritual teacher who still has made his connections with students are better than anything I've seen from the highest teachers in the game. I mean, he was unbelievable. Um, and I saw this conflict there and I was like, man, I've kind of been away from golf in, in the fact of like, I haven't been in like the, in the depths of it. I've only kind of followed the pro game and, you know, on the surface. And then when you, I was like, what did I, what have I missed? Like, what is going on here? Like you start teaching someone subconsciously, doesn't that go against the history of education, not just golf instruction, but education. Like you, that's how you teach. You give someone explicit information and you expect them to execute and that had changed. And so I was afforded the opportunity eventually to get a book deal and then follow this down every strange rabbit hole that was around. And, and they were richer and more interesting than I even realized. And I want to, uh, we're, we're going to talk about some of those rabbit holes, but when, when I, I'm always, one of the things I love to ask authors is, the, the process of a book coming together. So when did you think you might have an idea worthy of a book? Was it a tough sell or um, 
you know, did, did you ever yeah. think about different forms of writing? It was a tough sell. Um, it was, you know, it started as like, hey, this is interesting. Maybe it's a story for the paper. And then it was, yeah, this is pretty big. Maybe this is a magazine story. And then I, you know, then you start going outside of that. And it's like, this could really go pretty deep. And I don't know if there's going to be enough room for that. Um, so, yeah, when you start, like, developing an idea, I can only speak for myself. When I started developing the idea, it's, it's you know, there's this major conflict that, uh, that, I've, that I really saw as, a, as this conflict of modernity, right? Where, like, how do we either embrace or resist technology? This is something we deal with in everyday life. And it's just that conflict projected on the game of golf, which happens to be a very fertile ground for this argument. Just the game just lends itself to that. I guess the people who play it are pretty thoughtful and, and the game gives you so much time to think that it's, it just kind of brings itself out there. So yeah. And then, you know, it's like putting together the, the proposal and everything and trying to find someone who's going to take a risk and go, cause the book too is, is not, you know, when I started, it was, hey, here's this idea for what I'm going to go report on. So I can't give you a sample chapter because I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know? So that didn't make it any easier. <laughs> you know, you kind of have to trust someone's uh, instincts as a reporter. And I was I was probably the most fortunate break for me was was getting this editor, uh, Simon Schuster, this guy, uh, Jofi Ferrari Adler, who gave me enough time and enough guidance to and enough um steel hand to make me rewrite it three times <laughs> but it's so much better than it was <clears throat> the first draft and and he gave me the time and 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 uh, wisdom if from his experience to kind of go and report it and write it exactly the way i thought it should be done and he you know his guiding hand helped a lot so it was a long process i mean i signed that contract in 2012 so you know, put that along with a full-time job that it was a, uh, it was a long process, but it's, you know, right now the book coming out is, it's pretty rewarding and you kind of do it for yourself. You know, like there was a lot of times, a lot of times where, so sometimes are easier than others. And so there's sometimes where it feels like you're banging your head against the wall a little bit, but I was so interested in the topic and so loved doing it that it was more for myself than it was for anything else. And I, I hope that kind of translates on the page. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. And I was, you know, just a couple of things to offer. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that this book took a long time to write because as, as you said, I feel like the more, you know, my perception would be the more you get out and start exploring, uh, you know, just new avenues probably opened up and, and um, new stories to, to chase down. So that doesn't su surprise me. I do. I believe this is your first book, though. So was this is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that's right. OK. All right. Um, what I, and. I've had the fortune to read it. I know, you know, it's just going on sale today. So obviously uh, I would expect most of our listeners when they're listening to this interview have not read the book yet. Uh, what, I apologize if this is a tough question, but, but what, what's the one or two things that you would, in your mind, you want readers to take from this book? Huh? Um, you know, I guess, I guess like the main takeaway is that, is that golf is kind of worthy of this conversation, you know, like it, it, not to go down like this Avenue, but um, maybe a little bit is that, you know, there's been this reputation of golf that like, maybe it's a little, it's a little stuffy and there's not a lot of original things going on in the game. And, and there's a lot of, really interesting people and places in the game of golf, you know, and, and the people that are drawn to this game are drawn to it for a reason. And a lot of times they might not know why, you know, I think, I think a good example is, um, you know, if you boil this down as I, as I did it in the book to, you know, art versus science, um, there, you kind of find bedrock in, in, from both places in two in two books, one being the golfing machine on the science side, which is Bryson DeChambeau uses and guys have in the past, and um, 
and one would be uh, Golf in the Kingdom, the semi-fictional weird fantasy by Michael Murphy. And so people want to think, especially now, and this is this is kind of the conflict that's getting more and more intense is that people are reaching for something more concrete, right? Like they want like that one thing, that one piece of data that tells them this is correct and this is incorrect. And yet nobody knows the golfing machine and, and golf in the kingdom, you know, has sold millions of copies. It's translated into 13 languages. Clint Eastwood bought the movie rights at one point. Like, there is that message, that weird, strange message resonates with people a lot deeper than any sort of piece of technicality. And why? You know, nobody really wants to, you don't really want to think about it too much. You don't really want to like verbalize it too much. But it's that kind of connection to the land and nature and either the people you're with or the people or you're alone or the competition or the, or the lack of competition, like whatever it is that brings you to, it's a little more ambiguous than um, the concrete hard data that people are saying they're striving for. So I think, I don't know if there's a takeaway that maybe it's, it's golf's a lot more interesting than people give it credit for. And when you're drawn to it, and that's why golfers are such, like the people like you and I who are nuts about the game, we have that in common. You know, you're drawn to it for some reason that's deeper than just wanting to beat somebody else or just wanting to see a great course or, you know, something like that. Like there's a, there, the game is, is more interesting maybe than the average non-nut realizes. Yeah. And I, I think, um, to to back up what you're saying, uh, and, and I can tell readers, there are so many fun vignettes of different individuals. Um, there is some really incredible lineage that you trace uh, between people and these ideas that have existed in the game of golf. I, I think uh, for myself, it was it was a very rewarding read, just because I, I learned you know, about so many people that I have never come across in any other book or in any other, uh, you know, medium. Um, so, so for that respect, I, I think if, if, if nothing else, what, what I really took away from your book is, you know, oh gosh, one, I know much more about the golfing machine, which I, I do want to get into you. Um, I, I want to get into that with you, but also some of these names and stories and it's just has made the whole golf universe uh, that much richer for me. And so I, I, I greatly enjoyed it and I wanted to thank you. And um, I, I think any avid golfer or golf fan uh, will, will enjoy it. And I think we'll take away some of those same things. My question for you right now you mentioned the two central texts, one, The Golfing Machine by Homer Kelly. It was published in 1969. The other, uh, Golf in the Kingdom by Michael Murphy, published in 1972. What was your knowledge of those books uh, before you went about trying to put your book together? Did, did you know that was kind of the bedrock for each of these ideas? You said art and science? No, not really. Um I knew I knew Golf in the Kingdom. I'd read Golf in the Kingdom, um, which actually had, there's a sequel too called The Kingdom of Chivas Irons, which I did not know existed, and, and way fewer people have read. <laughs> um, and the Golfing Machine, I don't really think I was aware of it at all before I started this. And Scott Gummer wrote a really good book um, called Homer Kelly's Golfing Machine that came out. Gosh, I don't know, in the early 2010s or so. So that I think that's what probably alerted me to it uh, as I had kind of started going down this road. And I was like, oh, OK, there's there's that. And then, you you know, you get the golfing machine like you look at the book and it's um, it's it doesn't make any sense. It's like a reference. <laughs> have you looked at one? Have you ever I, seen one? I, I Truthfully, I have not. It's there. It's it's like a reference guide right it's like a textbook yeah. you're not supposed to read it chronologically like in order you're supposed to go and like read some things and then go back and then go back to this and then it becomes this very comp it take it's very hard to follow what's happening which is why homer kelly had um he wanted to have authorized instructors 
and there still are authorized instructors, but the first one was Ben Doyle. Um, so Homer Kelly and Ben Doyle shared uh, uh, religious uh, faith and Christian science, which kind of is is attached to the ideas in in the golfing machine as as in the sense that um, the golfing machine describes all of the geometry and physical actions that can happen and and it's correct so and christian science is is of this belief and uh, very generally that the world is perfect and anything that is wrong is a manifestation of sin or like human imperfection is so here's the golfing machine which is uh here are all the rules laid out perfectly and you know don't screw them up like or or like set up your own path and like this is it this is the truth this is all you need you know so when you start getting into that and and so i was lucky enough to go out to san francisco and meet ben doyle um and before he passed he passed away a couple years ago so i felt great about that just i felt very not great i felt lucky to be out there and and get to talk to him you know he taught um bobby clampett i think bobby clampett's one of the big examples of how technicality can kind of go down a bad path you know i mean three-time all-american at byu one of the brightest stars two-time player of the year in college comes out he's the okay rookie year and then he's leading the 82 open championship at troon he's up seven shots with 31 holes to go and makes an eight turns back sticks his tongue out and collapses you know loses a tom watson tom watson has some pretty sharp comments afterwards as he's known to do but but observant you know he's you know he kind of said like is this a game of technicality or guts you know and um and bobby clampett you know he kind of he ended up winning one pga tour event like a satellite event and that's it and then commentating you know and that was kind of and so and bobby is still he's a very smart guy he still has like a his instruction that he's doing now which just kind of evolved um and but he as a player he kind of fell down that path and there have been guys before golfing machine that have done that and after that have never heard of golfing machine there's guys that it's happened to with track man with everything else it's it's it happens it's just it's just a way it's an offshoot of the way you think about the game if you think it's solvable if you think you're going to turn around and have the answer and that answer is always going to be correct for you it's going to be hard f- to deal with failure. And the game is failure. It's nothing but bad shots. It's just how bad are your bad shots. So that's kind of how I came about them, or one I knew about because I kind of leaned that way anyway, and the other one was a was a revelation to see how impactful it is in the game still. Yeah. Um, I, I loved just the – and you set up – you know, you go into Homer Kelly, the author of The Golfing Machine, you go into his history with, with the game of golf, which I found fascinating. Um, and, and yeah, you know, tracing the, the lineage a little bit. Um, well, then let's, let's on, on the flip side of that, um, is Golf in the Kingdom and Michael Murphy. Uh, you, you said you had read it prior to starting your research on the book. Did you know? Um, I, I guess let me let me let me do this. What uh, talk to me about Michael Murphy, the person? Yeah. How to get a hold of Michael Murphy and how hard it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, although, yeah, although you know, when I started this, like Michael Murphy wasn't quoted. You didn't see him anywhere. He was like this. He was gone. And <clears throat> recently, it's like Bamberger talked to him and Alan Shipnick talked to him. Right, right. And those guys are the best. So it's like, of course they did. But uh, I remember when I finally got a hold of him, he was like, yeah. I was like, hey, can I come out and see you? And he, so he lives, you know, in Northern California. And he was like, yep. And you go out. Like I went out there and I, I, you know, just to sit across the table from him is like, you can tell like how intelligent and deep and but he's funny and irreverent at the same time and like his his interests are so varied i mean i tell the story of in the book of what actually happened in golf so golf in the kingdom is a story about a guy named michael murphy who goes on this journey to study in india uh and stops in scotland to play at a 
at a thinly veiled place called Burning Bush, <laughs> you know, so not to give away everything, but the real Michael Murphy was doing that. He was going to India and he stopped in Scotland. He played at St. Andrews. He now, you know, he didn't have the mystical experience that the fictitious Michael Murphy did. But it, when he starts telling you about like kind of what happened and what he what he was thinking about when he went from you know, Stanford and the classes he was taking at Stanford and then going to India and the stuff that he, you know, he thought he was going to India, he might not come back. He thought he might find enlightenment, <laughs> just yeah. not come back, you know? And then he, and then when he comes back, him, him and his, uh, him and his good friend, Dick Price, they end up opening Esalen, which became this kind of hub of like sex and drugs and, and everything in the late sixties, early seventies. And, um, and it's still it's still there. I mean, I went to Esalen, and it's it's a really cool, weird place. You know, there are hot springs coming out of the mountains that the ancient Indians that lived over there in Big Sur used to use as, as baths, and they still use them as baths. It's a little different now. Now it's a little more. Um, you know, people from Silicon Valley go there for retreats. But uh, but yeah, you know. And then when you find out when you see the wake behind Murphy and that book and you see how that's affected people in the game that's where you see the real connection because when you bring up golf in the kingdom to some people it, it, like you if you guys both like it it's there's a connect you immediately go like okay like okay you, you get it yeah you know, like you like you get it and even I remember I, like I talking to Sean Foley in the midst of him teaching Tiger Woods I brought up golf in the kingdom he was like oh yeah man Oh yeah, you know, like he got it, and he was like crunching TrackMan numbers and learning about the D plane. But like Golf in the Kingdom was it? Like it's still it's it's there. Do you think one thing that occurred to me uh, comparing um, the golfing machine and Golf in the Kingdom, and I don't necessarily know the answer to it, but it strikes me that for people that play competitive golf. And especially those people that want to try to make a living at it or do make a living at it, it seems that that segment of people might be more predisposed to the golfing machine and trying to solve golf and master golf and perfect golf. Whereas it feels like golf in the kingdom, at least to my generation and, and right now and folks I know, appeals much more to recreational golfers and, and people who golf as a hobby and you know it's it's a part of their life but not necessarily um you know it's it's not their profession or, or anything like that did did you find does that make sense at all did did you find yeah, that no, um, that, makes, that makes perfect sense that makes perfect sense because if you're going if you're going trying to break 80 you're not picking up you're, you're going to try to break 90. You're not reading the golfing machine. Like it's just not, and most people trying to break 80 are not picking up the golfing machine. It's just too, you need someone to decipher it for you. Like it's too, it's too much. Yeah. Um, and golf in the kingdom kind of connects on a spiritual level. It kind of makes you think about the game and go, okay, like, yeah, I can, I can see maybe this is a little, you know, a little dippy, but like, I can dig it. Like I can feel that I'm out. I see that when I'm out there. So yeah, I think that's definitely true. And, and I guess the natural follow-up would be given that both of these books were published, let's, you know, roughly 1970, uh, the, the time period before 1970, when you did have a lot of people playing golf professionally, how, how did people grapple with this before these books gave, language and specifics to to all of these ideas well the, i don't think these books changed it they maybe they shed light on a conflict that already existed because people were always there was always a sense of technicality and mechanics like that always existed i remember uh mike hebron's great great teacher uh former teacher of the year he's got all of these He's got this fascinating library, and I, I wrote a bit about him because he's he's now focused still on neuroscience and the learning of learning. Which, if we wanted to get into later, that's, I, and I do I want to ask you about him for sure. I and mean, that's like the cutting edge of science now to me in golf is that. But 
in his in his basement. His basement is what just make your jaw drop. It's unbelievable. Just stacks of American golfer magazines and everything. And then he's got this shelf of first editions. And he has uh, included in them is like is uh, Origin of Species first edition, like stuff that makes you freak out. Because I don't know how expensive that is. And I don't want to touch <laughs> it. But but he's also got these books from like uh, he has one. I think it's called the Golfer's Manual. Because I asked him, I was like, "What's your favorite?" And he picked this one. I think it was called the Golfer's Manual. It's from 1857, and in it it says like something along the lines of, "No other sport has so many." different ways of teaching or methodology and where everybody thinks they're correct, you know? And it's like, that's 1857. Like it always existed, you know, <laughs> like in this and people, I like, I think I, I say this a lot because I, it's, I think it's really true is that every great player and every great coach has always understood there's a balance between technicality and feel. Right. So there's always there's always something there where every great player, even the most feel players, even Freddie Couples and Ben Crenshaw, right, they understood their own mechanics to a certain extent. Um, but they played by feel. And there are some people like a Nick Faldo who mechanics was a little more in the forefront of his mind, but he still had to play by feel when he was out there. It's just how you cut up that pie. So those those two sides have kind of always existed. And maybe they weren't so much in conflict until more recently when science came along where people started getting their backs up against the wall and saying, I'm right and you're wrong no matter what because here's the data. You know, so that's kind of when things became a little more contentious. Um, But it's kind of something that's always existed. It's, It's always been there a little bit. You devote a chapter, uh, a, a large chapter in your book to this idea of Tiger Woods and dualism. And I think he, as you make the argument, and it's great because I, I totally get it, is he, within Tiger Woods, he kind of represents both of these schools of thought. And, you know, throughout times of his career, he's leaned more heavily in one direction, but can, can you talk about how Tiger kind of perfectly blends both of these things uh, and, and the importance that he plays in your book? Yeah. I mean, he came up, he, he came of age at a time when all of this was happening, you know, and he's been, he's a really curious guy and he wants to know the facts. He wants to know as much as he can and then decide how he's going to use it. You know, so there were times he probably leaned a little more towards the science aspect of things. And there were times where he's gone the other way a little bit. Um, you know, and I, I, somebody asked the other day, you know, do you think he would have been better if he didn't have all of that science, if he didn't get bogged down in all of that science? And the answer is no, because he this is who he is. Right? He wouldn't be who he is unless he had that obsessive interest. You know, so the fact that he went through all of that, that he knows all of the track man numbers, you know, that he knows how all of the force plates and kinematic sequence and that stuff, like he, he knows it. But and I think that this that's why now this is like the most one of the most fascinating stories, because. Like just from not not even from a personal perspective where it is so refreshing to see him loosen up a little bit, but from an actual golf instruction, like just just a game aspect is that he's not using anybody. You know, his his buddy Rob looks at him every now and again and says something, but he wants to get back to playing the way he was when he was a kid because that's. That I, like that's the way, and that's how how neuroscience bears out is that that's how you learn the best is by experimenting, by implicit experimentation. You know, so you learn by failing, or you learn by seeing. Uh, you know, boy, that felt like a push, and then if you look up and yeah, it's a push. Okay, I'm going to try to hit it farther left this time, and it's not. You know, and then I think the one with Tiger to me, the one quote that sticks out, and I think we'll talk. I think this will stick with him for decades when we talk about this guy is that 
he said he always said he's playing his best when feel meets real. So it's when he thinks that was a push fade, and then he can look at the track man and see that was a push fade, rather than it felt straight. Why did it go right? You know, and because that that's when the two are separate. So rather than use the data as as your as your basis for how you're figuring you're doing. You know, like there are some guys that hit shots and look at the track man and don't look at the ball. So where'd the ball go? What happened? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. and they lose, they kind of lose sense of that. So like reacting to ball flight and reacting around the greens and stuff. Like, I think that's part of why his short game's gotten a little better too, because it's, he's trusting his instincts a little bit more. Um, and he's just, yeah, I, I think he's just one of the most fascinating figures, and this is a really interesting time in his career. And he's kind of been the person where this whole conflict has played out within him over the last, you know, three or four decades. It's been, uh, and how he's dealt with it has shown, you know, how you can balance these two things to find success. And sometimes leaning one way more than the other, but that's kind of how you do it by finding that balance. Mm-hmm. And it's not lost on me how in his current uh, setup, as you said, not really a swing coach. He's got an advisor he checks in with. Uh, how that mirrors, well, one famous example, Jack Nicholas And yeah. his, I, I don't even know if instructor is the right word, his coach certainly growing up, uh, Jack Grout. Uh, but, you, you know, you, you mentioned in your book how Jack would check – check in with him, um, you know, maybe once or twice before the season really got started. And yeah. it was kind of, you know, make sure everything looks good from a more of a high level point of view. Um, and that's, and it's a natural lead into another big takeaway from your book. And that is just how golf instruction has changed and morphed through the years. I, I have a few questions here, but I guess where I'll start is you you profile a number of different instructors. How did you, what was that process like? How did you decide on which instructors were important uh, people to highlight in the book? You mean modern, modern guys? More like modern guys. guys. Yeah, more modern guys. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, there's, when you start looking at who's important, you know, who are, who are the highest profile guys, right? So when I started, Foley was teaching Tiger, and Sean is one of the most interesting guys out there. He has a lot of opinions, He's he, uh, but he's very curious. He's very fast to say, like, I thought that five years ago, and that's not true, and I'm wrong. And he, his, his philosophy is kind of always evolving. He's always trying to learn more. Um, you know, and then you look at like the at the recent history of you know David Ledbetter and Nick Faldo. That was a that was a huge one. That was, you know, he was that was one of the big turning points for instructors. You know, is that uh, they saw Nick Faldo get better, and you know what I found a, I found a very interesting story along these lines too. Of the first, I remember I asked very early on. I asked uh, David Glenn's. I was like, well, who was the first player? that you remember getting better because of an instructor and like, who was that instructor? Like, wh- how did that, how did that happen? And he was quick. He went Mac McClendon and it was this, this guy, and you know, I never heard of him. He came out of LSU in the late sixties. He was okay. Um, had a chance to win, uh, didn't, and then thought he needed to hit it farther and fell to pieces. And he ended up going to Jimmy Ballard. And so Jimmy Ballard kind of turned his his game around, and, and Jimmy Ballard has a really interesting backstory where his philosophy came from that goes back to Sam Bird, who played for the Yankees, and he learned how to hit from Babe Ruth. You know, so that was kind of that was some of the fun like rabbit holes you find. It's like, all right, well, here's the first guy who who made a teacher famous, and you know, then Jimmy Ballard from there went on to be teacher of the decade in the 1980s. Um, and that goes back to Babe Ruth. <laughs> so, and so like, yeah, so Jimmy Ballard was, you know, you find these guys and it's like, well, who are these, who are the, the seminal teachers? Who are the people that have changed the game? Who are changed the way people think about the game? 
Uh, and so, you know, you find these. And it, one of the difficulties of doing the book is that I always, it's impossible to be comprehensive. Sure. You know, so I had, there was a lot of like, oh crap moments when new things were coming out. And like, and it was, oh man, I got it. You know, like what happened here? Or like, you know, when Tiger and Foley stopped teaching, you know, when they stopped their relationship, it was like, oh, now what? Like, this, you know, but you, I tried to make it kind of as timeless as possible. Where like, here's a snapshot into what was happening during this time. Um, and here are the teachers that I, and so rather than profile every single person, here are the ones that I think either started this thought process or were the most biggest, highest profile proponents of this kind of thinking. So that's kind of how I found, you know, who I thought was the most uh, important to talk to. How'd you get down to Slidell, Louisiana? Oh, geez, that was a that was a trip. That was fun. Uh, it's because there is so there's this teacher in Slidell named James Lights, who I'd never heard of, uh, and fully started talking about him once, and he mentioned him in a story in the New York Times. I guess Foley was profiled in the Times, like right, right about when he started teaching Tiger. And he mentioned, he just offhand mentions this guy, James Lights. And I don't know why they used a quote, but they did. And then James Lights, like his whole thing, his whole lesson book starts blowing up, right? Because he was the guy who understood some some of the physics of ball flight better than other people. And I don't want to get too down in the, down in the weeds here sure, sure. about the D plane, but he pretty much understood this idea of the D plane and explaining how, how furthering explaining ball flight. So yeah. So, you, you know, down in, down in Slidell is a very interesting place on the, on the other side of the lake from new Orleans to find a guy who's, who's thinking like that. And that was a fun trip. Yeah. And, and he's, you know, he's another guy, obviously I had never heard of, um, and, and you profile him and, and kind of his whole history. He's obviously much more on the golfing machine side of the coaching spectrum. Uh, very technical. Uh, and so I, I guess now's a good time. How, let's compare that to a guy you mentioned earlier, Mike, uh, is it Hebron or Hebron? Hebron, 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 yeah. Mike Hebron. Um, I, can you unpack or, or discuss with, with listeners a little of what makes him, one, uh, so such a good teacher, and then two, what makes him so unique from his peers? Yeah, to me, um, Mike is the best teacher in America. And he could have, which makes him the best teacher in the world, but he could have been at some high-profile club. He could have been on the, you know, he taught, He's taught players who've won every major, but he won't tell you that because he's never on the range <laughs> of the tour. You know, he's never around. Um, and what happened was, so he was National Teacher of the Year in 1991, and he was a golfing machine guy. And he he studied the golfing machine. You know, he can still go through it for you if you want with numbers and, and names of muscles and things. Um but he started real right about that time. He won the highest award of teaching, in, you know, of a PGA of America teachers. Uh, he started realizing that not every student was getting better, and he didn't know why. And he realized that he didn't know anything about how people learn and how the brain works and how learning actually takes physically takes place. So he started studying about it, and he went to he. I mean, he's attended classes at. Harvard's uh, like mind and body uh, focus. He's gone to UCLA. He's become friends with all of these neurobiologists. Uh, he's written books with them. Um, and he found out really is that, you know, one of his biggest slogan is play to learn is that you learn best by failing and, and reacting to your environment. Cause you can't possibly tell you in the golf swing, particularly you can't possibly tell yourself every little thing that's going on as much as the golf machine wants to tell you, you can, you can't think like that. So 
you can only react and your brain works better thinking in, in pictures and visuals than it does in words. It doesn't, it doesn't register in the same efficiency, like massively inefficient using words and explicit information. So now, so what, so what he's done is he's shifted his way of teaching to being very, uh, very, it's a, it's a loose definition of a lesson. I mean, you go. He has he has over seven hundred kids. He teaches at this place called Smithtown Landing in Suffolk County here on Long Island. Um, it's a great little public golf course. He gets seven hundred kids in every summer for camp, and they have a blast. You go and watch these kids. Normally, you see kids at a camp, and it's like ah, oh, they're kind of dragging from here to there. These kids are having a blast because. He has them not just playing golf. He's teaching them to get better at golf by playing ping pong. Like, you know, you're hitting ping pong, and, he look, and then he'll look up at you and go, like, look, face control, and, like, swing the paddle, you know? Right. And then he has them, like, um, up on these, like, hard uh, r- like uh, rubber disc kind of things, going jumping from one to the other. Like, they're, like the ground is hot lava, right? Like, when you were a kid, and the ground was hot lava. <laughs> And he goes, well, you teach the athlete first. He's like, balance, you want balance in your golf swing? Here. You know, and like, so he teaches using these these implicit ways of getting across a message where he sees you swing. Like, uh, I I remember I went and I was like, Mike, take a look at my swing. Like, because sometimes that's like, let me see what it's like. Um, And I was like, I think I'm too steep. I think I'm spinning it too much. Like, you know. And he was like, all right, well, swing it flatter. Swing it as flat as you can. And I was like, okay. So I, you know, I took it as flat. And he was like, all right, now kind of take it back and hit it. And after a while, it's like, I'm, I have him on a rope, you know? And he's like, all right, what do you, all right, let's go. Like, what else do you need, you know? <laughs> and like, yeah, you would need to go, you know, it doesn't work. It's not that easy. But rather than hit, rather than saying something, putting you on video and describing it like that, like he, instead of video, he uses mirrors because you look at a mirror, you see it yourself. You see it in live time. You see yourself. And that, and that registers in your brain. And this is backed up in neuroscience. Like this is how, this is the cutting edge of, of how people are figuring out the brain and it's how it's coming to golf. And it's not being embraced all that much right now because it's still a little too weird and people still want, it's like, no, I want to, I want you to tell me to like, hold my right elbow in and put my weight on this on my left pinky toe and and that boom now i'm good you know like it doesn't work like that that's not how your brain works so but hopefully i mean i I don't know hopefully but eventually i think people are going to realize that this is kind of the way to do it and this is how you get better Mm -hmm. yeah he sounds like a, a really interesting guy i mean obviously in the world of golf but outside you know just how his insights into the human mind and as you said that the process of learning how to learn um i found i found that section of the book uh, i i really really enjoyed it so um the the other uh one of the other things i had flagged i wanted to ask you about was the rise of sports psychology and you you um trace it from a guy named William James, who before I started reading the chapter, I assumed was the the baseball, uh, the the famed baseball <laughs> yeah. writer, uh, Bill James. But um, it's a different William James. And, and but how his teachings got incorporated by I think a name most people recognize, Bob Rotella. Um, I, I wondering if you could shed a little light on that and, and how that has had an impact on golf and, and professional golf specifically. Yeah. Well, I remember, um, doing a story once, uh, from Met golfer magazine up here. It's the magazine, the MGA, and it was with a, a sports psychologist guy who said he was a sports psychologist and, and a, uh, he was a clinical psychologist too. And so I've, I didn't realize that I didn't know too much about sports psychology, but clinical psychologist thinks it's kind of BS because it's like really watered down. It's like, it's kind of nonsense to them. It's more like pep talks than it is actual psychology where clinical psychologists would say, well, we need years of you sitting on the couch and going back through, you know, your childhood and all of these things and your dreams and that Freudian sense of 
how can we decide what's happening in your subconscious and it's how it's affecting you every day where Bob Rotella goes back to this guy, William James, um, who it was his, his ideas were that you can kind of create your own destiny. You can kind of, you can kind of be the person that you want to be. It's like the will of belief. So, and, and that kind of bears out in some logic of, you know, if you're a sports team and you don't think you're going to win, you won't, right? So <laughs> that's kind of, well, you can't bring a fact to light. It's like, well, you can, because if you don't think it, it won't happen. And if you do think it, then you can bring it to light. So that's kind of where, and that and that's one of the reasons sports psychologists have been so popular and so successful, a guy like Bob Rotella, because... People think with the word psychology, people think it's going to be Freudian. They think it's going to be sit on the couch and tell me about how your mom didn't hug you. But like, that's not what it is. That's not what it's not. It's not that abstract. It's more the sports psychology is is think just getting you to think better. You know, I I believe Rotella said something along the lines of, uh, you know, we don't take people from a from abnormality and try to make them normal. We take normal people and try to make them excellent. So it's, it's changing your mindset to understanding how to think to be, to be better, to be more efficient. You know, he, and he, Bob says too, that the best athletes are, are great storytellers, right? So you tell yourself stories and like watching this Michael Jordan stuff now, right? Like he would, he tells himself that, opponents are talking trash when they weren't he was just lying to himself right, so he could right. be more motivated yeah and tiger did that same stuff you know like like do you do you really think Stephen ames was trying to get under tiger's skin like, maybe that's a bad example because maybe he was <laughs> but but tiger took it a little too seriously didn't he <laughs> like great yeah. athletes take like that's what they do they tell themselves stories so maybe sometimes the role of a good sports psychologist is to make sure that athletes telling themselves the right story. A lot of a lot of modern pros, like uh, instructors, like to say you don't really need a psychologist because they can deal with it. So, Sean Foley's teaching Justin Rose. This is like probably uh, early early twenty thirteen, and he goes, and you know what? It was right. At, I'm sorry. It was right after the twenty twelve season. And Justin Rose goes to Foley, he goes, you know, I really want to be a great wedge player, like Luke Donald. I want to be like one of these guys, a great wedge player. Foley looks at strokes gain and says, Rosie, you're fifth in the world in strokes gained approach. Like, you are a great wedge player. You are, people should want to be like you. And he was like, oh, okay. You know, and then goes out and wins the U.S. Open at Marion, right? Like, so, I, you know, sometimes it takes telling the player the right story, making sure they know the right story and that they're not hurting themselves by by beating themselves up with some truth. You know, like, oh, you missed a three-foot putt, you're a bad putter. It's like, no, you're actually a pretty good putter. You know, like, so just making sure that people understand the right stories. And that's, that's a big part of that sports psychology realm is just getting people to think positively. Yeah. Um, I, and I won't, you know, I want to leave stuff for the book, but... What I found most interesting, the anecdote, one of the anecdotes you used uh, with with Dr. Bob involves uh, really getting blessing from an older gentleman, an icon of the game. And I thought that was really interesting because I think sports psychologists and the whole idea of sports psychology, at least in my mind, it, it can get stereotyped as just a little bit modern wishy-washy, you know, these, yeah. these modern athletes are a little soft. It's not how, you know, it's not how they did things back in the day. Uh, and so I found that I, I really appreciated the the whole story of, of Dr. Bob. And like I said, this, this breakthrough moment that you detail um, where an older icon of the game essentially was like, yeah, God, I wish, I, I wish you were around back when I was, when I was playing, I would have won so much more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's the little things like that too, where it's not that, it's not that big a difference. And these kind of things have existed for a long time. And now 
pros have kind of all these modern with so much money in the game now. Um, why under like why read Bob Rotella thoroughly and and think you can digest it when you can just hire Bob Rotella? Yeah. You know? yeah. So it's like oh, athletes are soft. It's like maybe you know, like maybe <laughs> like yeah, some a little bit, but like what you don't need to understand the golfing machine super intricately to, um, to, to get that at level of technicality, just hire someone who does. You don't need to under, understand TrackMan all that well when you'll never know it as well as a guy you can hire. Mm-hmm. And when there's, when there's unlimited funds, it's, you know, and then now as an athlete, you can just focus on your job and you don't have to worry about so many other things, which is, which is why guys back in the day had to, you know, it was easier to get distracted because there wasn't, you had to do it all on your, all on your own. Yeah. Let me ask you then about uh, a figure that permeates a lot of your book. And that is Ben Hogan and what role he plays in the book. And also did your perception or your thinking of Ben Hogan change at all through your research and writing of this book? Yes, it did change um, because I, like everybody else, had this idea of Hogan as this mysterious, mystical kind of deity, right? Um, And it's funny, I've found the more you kick around in the corners of golf and the people that are really junkies throughout the history of the game and now, Hogan always resurfaces, it doesn't matter if you are a golfing machine nerd, if you are, uh, you know, a spear, if you're meditating in between shots, it always comes back to Hogan. And it's because he held this kind of ambiguous uh, control over the game that f- nobody feels like they can really control. So, you know, he wasn't the most talented guy. He wasn't the most successful but because he kind of held this everybody at bay a little bit and it was never um, it was never so out there exactly who he was or, or what happened that he, he, there was this aura around him. Um, and, you know, part of that was his own making with this idea of the secret that, you know, somebody asked him, what's the secret? And he led people along for the, his entire life, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, the secret there is, and I get into this in the book. I mean, there are dozens of people who think they know the real secret and oh, Hogan told me the real secret. (laughs) It wasn't, it's not out there. It wasn't, you know, and so, you know, life magazine gives him 10 grand and it's like, okay, well, here's a dream I had in 1946 about pronation of the left wrist. And it's like, okay, that's, that's a physical description of how to slice it. You know, I mean, that's what, and that's what five lessons is. Five lessons is a, is a wonderful instructional of how to hit a slice because when Hogan came up, he had the dreaded hook and he never wanted to hook it. So he figured out how to never hook it. And if you just pick it up, like, I mean, I have my, my copy of five lessons from when I was in high school and still got post-its notes all over it. Like I dissected the thing like crazy. And now I wonder why I can't hit a draw (laughs) under, you know, under, under pressure. And it's because my whole life I I was reading a book that was told me how to slice it. Um, So, but, you know, from every, every avenue from, you know, from stack and tilt to Hank Haney, everybody kind of thinks that Hogan can explain their theory can. And if you can say, oh, this goes back to Hogan, then golf heads, golf junkies are going to give you more clout. You know, I mean, when, when Tiger started working with Butch Harmon, Butch would tell him stories about Claude, his dad and Hogan practicing for Hogan would go down the Seminole and they would practice for the masters down there. And he would tell him about how Hogan practiced and how Hogan would do this at a Seminole, hit this shot to get ready for this shot at Augusta. And like Tiger ate that up because not just because it was golf history, because it was Hogan. You know, it was like he always had this grip on the game that was almost unexplainable. And it 
and it still exists and it probably always will because there's this ambiguity around who he was and what the secret was, you know, but mm-hmm. oh, there's a reason Hogan is like the central figure to most people. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you this then on a personal level. So your, your book does a beautiful job laying out the, the science of the game, the art of the game. Let's get back to, you know, you go out on a golf course. Where do you fall on this spectrum between art and science? This is a, this is a, a relatively tr- tricky question. To answer. <laughs> um, so, because I, I, I did make it, I made it a point that there's only the first person in this book in the prologue where I explain that story about how everything started, and in the epilogue where I tell this kind of this this wistful trip I had to Bandon Dunes, which kind of give maybe give some insight into how I feel about the game. Yeah. But, um, so here, here's how I explain it, right? So I didn't really play all that much. And then I started playing competitively. I wanted to start playing competitively again a couple of years ago. So I had all of this information. I knew all of this, right? Like I had, and I had presented it in this book objectively from both sides and I'm comfortable with it. You know, it's like, here is, I'm a reporter. Here are the facts. Here is, you know, here is what is happening. And then when you, have to ask yourself the question of what am I going to do? That's when you have to make a decision. You know? <laughs> and so, so when I, when it was like, okay, I would like to play in the Met Amateur, like how am I going to get better? You know? And so I lean towards the feel side just because that's the way my brain works. You know, I, here's a quick story is that I played in the, um, uh, the Met Mid Amateur a couple of years ago. I was at Bayonne, great golf course. And I go on a practice round. I have a local caddy, takes me around the place. I love it. I'm going to play great tomorrow. It's going to be a lot of fun. I get another caddy for the first round and he seems like a nice guy. I hit two iron off the first team. Okay. I got like 130 in. He goes, hit a 142 yard shot. And I was like, I don't, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. Like I can hit, I can hit a six iron 142 yards. I can hit a pitching wedge 140. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, so it took me a while to <laughs> tell him, <laughs> like, just give me the number on the ground because, I, and I'll figure out how to hit it because that's just the way like my brain works, right? And I play with a guy who's a good friend of mine who's like a five handicap cannot hit a 90% shot, more or less a, a 65, 75% shot. If he's got 142 yards and that's between nine iron and pitching wedge, he doesn't know what to do, you know, but give him 138 yards, which is a perfect pitching wedge. He'll swing full out and hit it. Great. So it's just, it's not better one way or the other. Like it's not better if you obsess, maybe it's bad if you obsess over track, man, but it's not bad to look at it a lot. Um, it's just how your brain works. Like, so that's the way my brain works. And, and at this point, like I'm a, you know, I'm a local amateur got like, I'm just out there to have fun, you know? So I don't find there, I, I don't find there to be too, maybe if there was pressure for me to make a living doing it, I might, I might act differently. But to me, it's like, I'd rather go out and my most enjoyment doesn't come from some sort of athletic perfection. It comes from like the joy of imperfection of like the bad bounce, the good recovery shot or the, you know, finally hitting one good or making that putt that kind of falls in and you read it right. And you remembered it, you know, like just the little things is what kind of keeps me so interested. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that describes how I view the game as well. I, I'm much more, I just have much more fun when it's, you know, when it's, 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 it's more feeling based to me. Uh, and I always say maybe that's just because I have, you know, maybe my swing's just not good and, and I don't really take, you know, it, there could be a lot of reasons for that. But um, like you said, it, it there's, I, I think golf is the most fun when, you're presented with a shot that you could hit a few different ways. And, uh, you know, you, you got to sort of paint that picture of the shot you want to hit and you can get creative with, you know, how you're going to flight it or what club you're going to hit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
and and I think that all kind of feeds onto the the feel side. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I think, I think golf comes back to. Uh, I think that comes back to golf courses too, Andy. Like, what kind of golf course do you like? Right. I mean, you go to some places and it's Target Golf, and it's like it puts me to sleep. And it's if you know if it's too hard and there's no options, it's like, well, what are we even doing here? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, great, you can hit a full seven iron better than I can. <laughs> you know, like, who cares? Like, it's just not fun. Yeah, and I always joke. I, I think what you just described there to me feels like playing golf swing, and I think playing golf for me is much more of a ground game, much more of an option-based game, much more of a game that, you know, there is creativity to be had. Uh, you, you can get maybe similar results many different ways. I, I think that's when golf uh, is, is at its best for me. Absolutely, yeah. I don't, I don't love simulators. You know, like they're fun right. in the winter, maybe, but like, <laughs> it's just not it's not this it's not playing golf you're right that was a very good way of saying it. it's the playing the golf swing not playing golf yeah well brett um the book is out today where where would you like people where can they find it uh what's what's the most helpful for you yeah any you know you can get anywhere books are sold so amazon obviously uh you go to bookshop.org that supports your local indie bookstore which still exists hopefully and that's the same they mail it to you like anybody else so anywhere else you like buying books feel free it's out there awesome um is there anything that i didn't get to that that you you want to get off your chest did i did we miss anything <laughs> Jeez, i don't i don't think so no i think we uh I think we covered it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, these, the, you know, the, these are always, it's always a little bit of a fine, um, a, a delicate dance, if you will, because I don't want to, you don't want to just spill all the best parts of the book, right? I, I, yeah. I encourage people to go pick up the book. It's, it's a great, it's a great read. Uh, it would be a great gift for any golfers in your life. Uh, Father's Day is coming up next month. Mother's Day later this week, et cetera, et cetera. So it's once again, it's Golf's Holy War, the battle for the soul of a game in an age of science. Uh, the author is Brett Sergalis. Brett, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me, Randy. And I do want to say that, you know, you guys at No Laying Up are a, are a special breed and a, and a, breath of fresh air into golf media if you ask me from a guy who's who's ink stained at an old school newspaper um your your stuff is is uh, very enjoyable and I, and I think it's 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 ruffled the right feathers and gotten people focused on what should be more important which is having fun so I, I th thank you so much. I, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate the kind words, and uh, I will say there's not much more enjoyable than than ruffling the right feathers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can put that on the front of the new website. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, uh, Brett, we'll I'll, I'll let you go. Thanks so much again, um, and hopefully we can we can talk down the line. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, you need anything? You let me know. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who